Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. We'll be reading all of chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord, <coughs> when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, let me just pray for us, and we will jump into the text. Father in heaven, Lord, God, we come before you in humility and weakness, God. Uh, Father, we confess that even though we are finite creatures, Lord, dependent uh, on you for every breath that we take, God, we tend to exalt ourselves all the time. We want to be the lords uh, of our own lives, God. So I ask that you would forgive us. I ask that you would soften our hearts, God, to who you are. Uh, Lord, you are wonderful and good. God, would you help us to see you? Would you fill us with your spirit? Uh, help us to draw near to you and submit to your good and kind rule. Father, we love you, and would you please change us, God? Would you change our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've finished up uh, our series in 1 Thessalonians, Gospel-Shaped Family. Uh, and here in 1 Thessalonians, we got to see the values and the foundations uh, that a that basically build up a gospel-shaped family. Um, our next series that we're starting today in 2 Thessalonians, right, 2 Thessalonians was written very shortly after 1 Thessalonians, uh, but this follow-up letter of Paul focuses on one particular value that should shape God's family on earth, and that value is anticipation. Uh, we saw this theme a bit in 1 Thessalonians. So if you think back to chapters 4 and 5, Paul called us there in 1 Thessalonians to uh, expect the return of Christ. So we were called to anticipate Christ's return. But the theme of anticipation is much more dominant in this second letter. Uh, it's actually Paul's main concern, anticipation. Not only what we should anticipate but also how we should anticipate it. 
So this is what it breaks down into, uh, roughly. Chapter 1, Paul calls us to anticipate God's justice. Chapter 2, Paul calls us to anticipate God's power over evil. And then in the second half of the book here, Paul transitions to describe the manner in which we should be anticipating these things. So we anticipate these things by trusting in God and working hard for the sake of others. Now, I know there's all, we've all had things we've anticipated, right? All, we've all had things we've looked forward to. And I think if we just think, take, take a second to think about it, it always seems like there's something new to look forward to. There's always something new to anticipate. There's the next new thing, like the next model of a car, or next iPhone, or next gadget. There's always some item to anticipate. Uh, there's always the next phase of life to anticipate. Uh, there's always the next event to anticipate. So the next championship game, uh, title fight, World Series. John's probably anticipating another disappointing season <laughs> with the Phillies. <laughs> In this age of distraction, where everything is competing for your attention, what I believe we often forget about is that deep down inside the heart of every Christian is the anticipation that God is going to right every injustice, that he's going to right every wrong. Deep down inside, we are anticipating Isaiah 42, 4, that God will establish his justice in all the earth. I believe that's something that we all long for deep down inside. You know, we're, we're conditioned to anticipate things that have little value, that are trivial, inconsequential. Like, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. Like, uh, Saturday, the day before Easter, I was thinking about preaching here, but another thing I was anticipating was a UFC title fight. So I'm, I'm guilty of this too. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 gives us something much different to anticipate. It gives us something weighty something essential to the gospel, and that is divine justice. According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when Jesus returns, two things happen. When he returns, he will grant relief to those who are suffering, but not only that, he will inflict vengeance and eternal destruction on those who do not know God. So we have eternal blessing alongside eternal destruction, right? The blessings of heaven paired with the punishment of hell. You know, honestly, I don't know a single preacher, I don't know a single person that likes to talk about hell and divine justice. And when people invoke hell, it's usually done in an unhealthy way. I remember one of the first times I was invited to believe in Jesus. It was right here on Okinawa. I was 16 years old. I wasn't a believer yet. And the chapel message basically went like this. Hell is hot. Forever is a long time. You should accept Jesus into your heart. <laughs> like, the message itself was a lot longer than that, but that was basically it. Three points. Hell, forever, pray this prayer. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, 
well, I don't believe this, but just in case, you know, I might as well. A message like that is deficient. It falls short of the gospel. But the opposite kind of message, that is true for the opposite kind of message as well. If we remove God's authority to judge sin, if the gospel that we preach ignores the reality of eternal destruction, then we are effectively putting ourselves in the place of God. If we get to pick and choose what God's justice looks like, then that means we're in charge. We have the supreme authority. And that is bad news because we don't have the power to save a single soul, not even our own. When we water down the gospel by removing God's justice, it makes it so that there's no real hope we have to offer. Two things happen when Jesus returns. Relief for those who are suffering and vengeance for those who do not know God. Both things are ensured by divine justice. Both the good and the terrifying are a result of God's righteous judgment. If we remove divine justice from the gospel, then we leave open a world of unanswered hurt for those who are suffering. The Thessalonian Christians were facing unjust persecution within the Roman Empire, and this was a place where the powerful often got away with doing whatever they wanted to at the expense of others. For many, the Roman Empire was a place of unresolved, unanswered suffering. It was a place where justice was impotent. Anyone here familiar with the book Brothers Karamazov? by Fedor Datsayevsky. I am attempting to make my way through this book. I'm listening to it, so it's like a half try. Um, But it does a really good job of illustrating some of the tensions that we see in just a cruel world that's full of suffering. So this, this fictional story, it's set in the late 1800s in Russia. So a a place of, like, just a time of suffering and conflict, and it was just a very tumultuous time in history. And this story is about two brothers who have just a horrendous father. Uh, The older brother, Ivan, he is a handsome, brilliant, gifted intellectual. And the younger brother, Alyosha, he is uh, not nearly as gifted but he is a man of character. He is a devout Christian. And this story is about both of them trying to make sense of the cruel world that they live in. So I'm gonna I read a little portion to you of an argument that they're having, and, and I do wanna give you a disclaimer. There's um, some violent imagery here, so if you're not comfortable with listening or having your kids listen to this, uh, please don't feel obligated to stay in your seat. Um, There's imagery about murder and torture. But this is what Ivan has to say to his younger brother. I do not 
finally want the mother to embrace the tormentor who let his dogs tear her son to pieces. She dare not forgive him. Let her forgive him for herself if she wants to. Let her forgive the tormentor her immeasurable maternal suffering. But she has no right to forgive the suffering of her child who was torn to pieces. She dare not forgive the tormentor, even if the child himself were to forgive him. And if that is so, if they dare not forgive, then where is the harmony? Is there a, in the whole world a being who could and would have the right to forgive? I don't want harmony. For the love of mankind, I don't want it. I want to remain with unrequited suffering. I'd rather remain with my unrequited suffering and my unquenched indignation, even if I am wrong. Besides, they have put a too high a price on harmony. We can't afford to pay so much for admission. And therefore, I hasten to return my ticket. And it is my duty, as if only as an honest man, to return it as far ahead of time as possible, which is what I am doing. It's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha. I just most respectfully return him his ticket. Alyosha said softly, that is rebellion. Church, when we water down the gospel by removing God's right to punish sin, when, he remove, when we remove him from his position as judge, we remove any hope that he will right every wrong. By removing divine justice, we leave open a world of unrequited, unanswered suffering. The gospel is so much more than a therapeutic message, something to make you feel better and give you confidence about your day. Paul's gospel is far more than anyone's moralism or individualism. It's far more than a prayer to pray or a behavior to adopt. In Paul's gospel, justice goes hand in hand with restoration. The hope of Paul's gospel depends on a God who has every right to judge and punish sin and therefore every ability to truly make all things new. We want an honest faith that deals with honest problems and honest questions. This is one reason why I think our deacon of apologetics, John Holmes, this is one reason why I think he serves our church so well, is by tackling some of these hard questions. We don't want to ignore these things. And this is exactly what Paul is confronting us with in 2 Thessalonians. So our main idea, main idea of this passage is that God's righteous judgment is the basis for eternal hope and eternal punishment. God's just judgment is the basis for eternal hope and eternal punishment. 
this truth produces two things in God's people. Two points. It produces evidence in the present, and it produces comfort for the future. So looking at point number one here. Paul opens up his letter by discussing the evidence of God's righteous judgment. So you look at verse 5, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So this, the word this, refers back to everything in verses 3 and 4. So the evidence of God's righteous judgment is everything that we see in verses 3 and 4, under the heading of thanksgiving in the ESV Bible. This is the evidence that God has judged rightly. So, to put it a different way, God's righteous judgment, right? His verdict as judge is revealed through certain qualities in the Thessalonian church. What we see is that God's just sentence right, the decision that he has made, his verdict, has a real effect on the hearts of believers today. It's not just something that's stored up for us in the future. So you see, believers have been declared righteous by the judge. We've been declared righteous by God, and that verdict over all who are in Christ is justified. That is God's righteous judgment, and his righteous judgment has an impact on the way that people live today. And according to 2 Thessalonians, that just verdict is evidenced in growing faith, growing love for one another, and steadfastness under persecution. Now, there's actually not a lot I need to to say to you all here, except for keep up the good work. Because when I think about Pillar Church, I think about these three traits. You all have the attitude, the the posture of seeking Jesus, growing closer to Jesus, and growing in love for one another. That's your mentality. It's easy to see. Now, I don't think anyone here is facing the kind of persecution that the Thessalonian believers were, but I also see very little cultural Christianity here. What I mean by that? is not many people here are coming to worship and becoming members because that's just the thing to do, as if this is your cultural obligation. I see very little insincerity. What I see at Pillar, rather, is ownership of faith. So I want to tell you that God's judgment over you, that you are declared righteous in Christ, has produced evidence His judgment has produced real change. You are an example of the gospel's power to change lives. Now, I would imagine a lot of us have been to churches where the message goes something more like this. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. I'll see you next week. That, as well, is a watered-down gospel. But the truth is that God's verdict, his righteous judgment that you are counted righteous in Christ has the power to change your hearts today. Now, one detail I want to hang out on uh, just a little bit longer is that Paul says the Thessalonian Christians are growing in faith and love. So I want us to think about the assumption here. 
we're growing in faith and we're growing in love. What this tells us is that no one in the church is the finished article. We are growing in faith. And if we're growing, that means naturally that there's going to be some differences in how well we can articulate doctrine and faith, some differences in our maturity level and spiritual disciplines. No one has the perfect doctrine. No one has the perfect life. We are all growing in the faith, yet, according to Paul, we are to grow in love for one another nevertheless. So I want to say that you don't belong because you have the right points of theology or because you have the right spiritual disciplines or the right behaviors. No, you belong because of Jesus. If you are convinced that you desperately need Jesus, but you have a ton of questions about the Bible and about doctrine and about how to be a good husband or a good wife or how to witness to your coworkers, then this is a great place for you. From here, Paul transitions to speak of the effect that God's judgment has for the future. It's point number two here. We've seen that God's just judgment, that his verdict, makes a difference for the present. And what Paul focuses on for the rest of the letter, or the rest of this chapter, is that his judgment will make a huge difference for the future. For the sake of clarity here, um, if we're looking at verse 5, the last half of verse 5, What I want to say is that the thing that makes it so the Thessalonian believers will inherit God's kingdom is not the fact that they are suffering. So suffering by itself, suffering in itself, does not make you worthy of the kingdom as if that is a merit that you can bring before God. No, the only one that makes you worthy of God's kingdom is Jesus. That's it. The ESV, if you're looking at the ESV, it's a a bit ambiguous. I love the ESV. It's the elect standard version, but it is a a little ambiguous here. And the NIV brings a little bit more clarity. So looking at the NIV, all this is evidence that that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, right? So the result is based on God's judgment. The result that you are counted worthy is based off of the righteous judgment of God. The point is that suffering is not the reason that you will be counted worthy. Following Paul's argument, the only reason you are counted worthy by God is because God is a righteous judge. His just verdict is the foundation that provides security, not whether you may or may not be suffering. It's God's judgment that provides assurance and comfort. What Paul is seeking here, what Paul is trying to do with his congregation, he's trying to root their confidence for the future. He's trying to anchor their confidence for the future in the righteous character and authority of God. Similar to what we see in Genesis 18. In Genesis chapter 18, uh, Abraham, Father Abraham, 
he is interceding for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's praying for this wicked city. And as he's speaking to God, he asks God a rhetorical question. He says to him, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. There's no question about it. Of course God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is just. So as Abraham is facing down this hard prospect, this difficult situation, as, he, as he's dealing with his questions about the scope of God's judgment, what he looks to is the character, the just character of God and his position as judge. God's just character is incredibly good news, especially for those who are suffering, and that is exactly what Paul wants to anchor his congregation in. If you look at verse 6, Paul writes that God considers it just to grant you relief. Relief, relief from suffering depends on God's character and authority as judge. And this is a message that many Christians around the world are in desperate need of. I just want to share you a couple of statistics about the persecution of Christians around the world. In 2021, 1,147 Christians in China were wrongfully imprisoned. In India, 1,445 Christians were beaten for their faith in Jesus Christ. And in Nigeria, 1,350 Christians died for their loyalty to King Jesus. All examples of unjust persecution. So for the Christians in these communities, do you know what's good news? Divine judgment, divine justice, because divine justice means relief from suffering. Yet just like divine justice is the assurance of our comfort, it is also the assurance that God will punish those who reject him. Taking a closer look at verses 7 through 9. God considers it just to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Again, when the Lord returns, two things happen. Relief for believers and eternal destruction for those who do not know God. And here is why those two realities are bound together. If you think about a judge's responsibility, it basically breaks down into two things. A judge is responsible to measure out the right punishment for the person that's committed the crime, 
and he is also responsible to ensure the restoration of the person that was wronged. A judge's responsibility is to measure out the right punishment and to ensure the restoration of the individual who was wronged. Let's think about it this way. A judge who looks the other way at sin, who ignores sin, just forgets about it, doesn't measure out the right punishment, that judge would be called unjust. Now, what about a judge who punishes the crime perfectly but does nothing to restore the wronged party? That judge would also be considered unjust. Here, Paul is describing how God is the perfect judge. He lists out the crime and the punishment. And they are perfectly balanced. God will not let sin go unpunished and he will not forget about the injustices that fall upon his people. But he will perfectly restore them. Now, hell can be a difficult thing to think about. And if you're wrestling with the existence of hell, just a couple of things that I, that I would suggest that you remember. The first is that those who are in hell remain unrepentant. Right? Those in hell, like, now that they're there, they're not, like, regretting their decision. Right? They're, they're not repentant now. It's not like they didn't realize how bad it was going to be, and after seeing how awful it was in hell, now they want a second chance. No, the way that the Bible talks about people who are in hell describes them as growing in their hatred and rebellion toward God. They gnash their teeth at him in growing hatred. There's no such thing as a repentant person in hell. Second thing to keep in mind is that God shows grace to sinners. I think reading this, for me, I think we may be confronted with our own injustice. The ways that we have wronged other people. But eternal destruction is for those who have not submitted to the gospel. Which means that there is grace for those who repent. You just think about the life of Paul. He was the opponent of Christianity. He used to violently persecute Christians. Yet no one had more assurance than Paul, even though he used to be this huge opponent, this huge persecutor of Christianity. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, God saves sinners, of which I am the foremost. So if you are doubting God's grace because of the existence of hell, then look to your own sinfulness. If he can save you, if he can save Paul, if he can save me from a godless, wretched, hell-bound existence, then he can save any sinner. God shows grace to sinners of which I am the foremost. And God does so, upholding his perfect justice. In that short portion I read to you from Brothers Karamazov, 
uh, we saw that Ivan was insinuating that no one has the right to forgive the suffering that's inflicted on another. So even for the mother whose child died, not even she has the right to forgive her child's murderer. Not even God has the right to forgive, according to Ivan. But his concept of God ignores several things, but it ignores one important historical reality. We believe in a God who became incarnate. The fullness of deity took on human flesh. Jesus experienced the fullness of unjust persecution. Do you know who suffered injustice more than anyone else in the history of the world? Jesus did. He was without sin. He only loved people with an an honest, self-sacrificial love. And yet he was falsely accused, falsely tried, he was mocked, brutally tortured, and executed. I mean, one thing that we tend to glance over is the fact that he was scourged. It doesn't even take up half a verse in our Bibles. He was scourged, beaten and bloodied to the point he was unrecognizable. You ever think about his mother seeing him like that? Like, can you imagine what would have been going through her head when she saw him? Look, there's my son. He's a bloody mess. He's barely recognizable. Why is this happening to him? He's only ever loved people and been kind to them. He's only healed the sick and fed the hungry. He's only revealed the grace and mercy of God to us. He's only shown us the best of what humanity has to offer. Yet there he is being tortured by the people he came to save. Do you think Mary forgave her son's tormentors? We know how Jesus responded, don't we, on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does God have the right to forgive human suffering? Jesus seemed to think so. Unlike Ivan, Jesus knew that God's justice is perfect. He understood that every sin will be accounted for, and therefore every hurt, every single moment of anguish and pain will be made right. Jesus understood the reality, the truth of Revelation 21.4 that God will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Our judge doesn't ignore sin. Therefore, he has the right 
and the capability to restore all the innocence that was lost and all the joy and all the goodness and all the life that has ever been stolen. Because our judge is perfect, he can and he will make all things new. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Church, there is no question about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we are thankful for who you are. God, you are beyond our comprehension. Uh, your goodness is greater than we could imagine. Your mercy and kindness are greater than we can articulate or ever fathom. God, so we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you, God, for your justice. God, it is the solid rock that we stand upon. Our hopes are placed in you, the good and perfect judge of all the world. We love you, Lord. Would you please bless our church? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.